Our gospel lesson this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It should be found on page 1513 in your pew Bibles. This is Jesus' calling one of his disciples in particular, the one who later goes on to write this particular gospel. As we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it. Give us hearts that are ready to apply it and live it. God, that by your word and by your spirit, we would be drawn closer to you, we will be conformed more into the image of Jesus. We'll be made more into the people that you created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Turning then to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It should be found on page 1817 in your pew Bibles. Paul had written earlier in chapter 2, that is, in Jesus, that the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And he says, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Then he says, Ephesians 3.14, For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's... After reading passages like we've already read this morning, it almost feels like we don't need a sermon at all. We'll just say amen and go home. <laughs> don't get excited. But there's more. And that's an amazing thing. Is it just, there's so much more. Um, and this morning, the text we'll mainly be looking at is one we haven't gotten to yet. It's uh, from the book of Second Samuel. It's chapter 9. 
and this is continuing in the story of David, but this is a time that we're looking at. I don't know if this is going to sound familiar, but we're going to be looking at a time in a nation's history where politics was somewhat divisive. Uh, and the leadership had to dis- determine what to do. There had been a change in leadership, and that was one of the things that had stirred everything up. It may sound a little familiar, but I'm going to caution you as we read this passage that while you might be tempted to immediately make connections between what we read here and... Um, various people in politics, etc. Be careful. Because everything in the Bible is one of those things where it has to go to you before it can go to anybody else. So it has to apply to me before I can ever preach it to you. And it has to apply to you before you can ever start applying it to anybody else. Otherwise, there's a danger of instead of discerning what is evil out there, and in us, instead of being discerning, we become judgmental, where we start pointing out and condemning the evil others and excusing the evil in ourselves. We don't want to be that. We don't want to do that. And that's not what we're called to. So, um, just a brief note before we begin. This is something that will primarily be applied to us, helping us know how to be even at this time in our history. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. The time period is David as king now over Israel. And there has been some problems in the nation with the transfer of power from one king to the next. Saul had been the king, and now David is the king. The problem is David was not Saul's son. And so it had switched families. But Saul still had living relatives. And so there had been... uh, some confusion as to who was actually going to be the next king. And so a guy named Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, there we go. There's going to be some hard names today. Uh, he actually was one of Saul's sons, and they said, hey, this guy is going to be our king. And then some other people said, no, David's going to be the king. And so it was sort of divided there for a while, but then Ishbosheth gets murdered. And then David has to murder the ones who murdered him. It's, it's messy. Um, and eventually David does become king over everyone. And uh, what we saw last week is then God has given David rest from the enemies all around. And now as he's leading the people, David has this. Chapter 9. David asked, is there, still, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, 
Mephibosheth. At your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. This is one of my favorite stories, by the way, except that you have to keep saying Mephibosheth. (laughs) Use a pronoun here or there. Anyway, (laughs) just say say he, he, okay. Uh, Anyway, this story is an amazing one because it absolutely flies in the face of everything that anyone would have expected for the time. For David to be the king, it was absolutely expected that he would search out all the descendants of the previous king. That's the way the transfer of power went. When it went from one family to another family, you didn't want some rival uh, descendant of the earlier king coming up and getting somebody behind them and saying, hey, I'm the true king, I'm the rightful king, and this guy is taking my family's place. Let's all get him out of here. And so, to prevent that, what would generally happen is you would search out all the living descendants of the previous king And you would kill them all. And that way, there was nobody left to claim the rightful heir to the throne. And so there, your kingdom is established. You are now the king. And so, David is in this position. And then he puts the word out. Is there anybody left from Saul's house? And everybody goes, oh, I know what's coming. But he says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, I don't know how people would have heard this if they would have been like, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's funny. You know, go ahead and say, oh, I'm going to be nice to you. Come here close. And then, but no. He means it. He really is wanting to find somebody who's from the house of Saul that he can, be, that he can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan. And why? What's the story with Jonathan? It's one we kind of skipped over as we were going through the life of David pretty quickly. But David was actually... Or, Jonathan was actually one of Saul's sons. Saul is the king. Jonathan is next in line. And I want you to hear this. This is Jonathan and David become very close friends. And when that happens, is at a strange moment. (laughs) In 1 Samuel 17, we have David and Goliath. David defeats Goliath. He triumphs over him. uh, Then immediately, the next, uh, the very end of that chapter, Saul is saying, whose son are you, young man? And David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Next verse, chapter 18, um, after David had finished talking with Saul, 
Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is the same moment, by the way, where Saul starts getting increasingly jealous and starts trying to kill David and try to stop him from ever becoming king. Jonathan, on the other hand, becomes friends with David, loves him as himself, it says, and takes off the very things that mark him out as the prince, that mark him out as the son of the king, that mark him out as the one who's the heir, the one who's next in line to be the king, and he gives them to David as a way of saying, you're going to be the next king. It's not going to be me. It's going to be you. And I'm okay with that. Because Jonathan is not putting himself above David. But he sees what God is doing. And he's being a part of that. In fact, there are actually a couple more times throughout the story between that moment and when, um, when David eventually becomes king where Jonathan is instrumental in saving David's life even when Saul is trying to kill him. And Jonathan continually is saving David's life. He's like, you're going to be the next king. And it would have been, if Jonathan had been putting Jonathan first, I'll be the next king. And this David guy, you know, whatever. But no. He sees what's happening. And he loves David as himself. This is that command, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what we see Jonathan putting in action with David, and David is doing the same thing back, loving Jonathan as himself. And so we see that even generationally. That's why when uh, David is eventually king, he's searching out the descendants of Saul because of this uh, covenantal love that had been uh, between them. Love you as myself, you love me as yourself. And so even though Jonathan is dead, he says, can I still show this kind of love to somebody in the family? Something that David had actually promised to Jonathan years and years before. They say, well, there's this guy. It's actually one of Jonathan's sons. His name is hard to pronounce, but that's okay. They don't say that, but it is. They say he's lame in both feet. This actually happened when he was uh, very young. It's in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. Uh, verse 4, Jonathan, had a son of, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she heard to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. And this is when there was that initial uh, kind of anxiety of who the next king was going to be and thinking people were going to be looking for all the descendants of Saul to kill them. And it was trying to get him out in time that made him lame. He has now, he's since grown up. And David calls him in. And he responds exactly as you would expect. He bows down and he expects nothing good is coming from this. Nothing good is coming from this. And then David says... Oh, but wait. He says, don't be afraid. 
for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then he restores to him all the land that belonged to his grandfather, Saul. Because you will eat at my table. And Mephibosheth, of course, still bows down. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Okay. This is a nice story. But where it really comes home is in this, uh, this phrase that David said in verse 3. Is there no one still alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Because it doesn't really come through what's going on here as far as just being kind. Unless we understand that this is actually a, a word that also means love. It's a word that actually means that covenantal love. It's um, that chesed. It's hard to say. But it's, um, it's the kind of love that God has for his people. And here we have David saying, I want to show that kind of love, the kind of love that God has for me, the kind of love that Jonathan had for me, the kind of, that is what I want to show now to somebody else. And here's the great thing. Mephibosheth was, he did nothing to deserve this. He was actually politically, just because of the family he's a part of, he's now a political enemy of David. So David seeks out his political enemy who has done nothing to deserve anything good from him. And he says, I am going to just overflow good things on you. (laughs) And I'm going to basically adopt you in as one of my own. Restoring to you the lands that your father had and also allowing you to sit at my table as one of my own sons. Does this sound familiar to you? Are we not all in the position of Mephibosheth here? The Bible talks about us being enemies of the true king, that we're all rebellious in nature, that, we, that politically, that's who we are, and that we've done nothing to deserve anything good, and yet that's what he does. This is the kindness of God. This is the love that he has for us, where he takes us and he says, I'm going to pour out good things on you just because. Not that you deserve it, but because I love you. And then, of course, he calls us to do the same. And so as we look at the story, we say, wait, are we, are we supposed to be the Mephibosheth in the story, or are we supposed to be the David in the story? Yep. We can't be the David, I don't think, unless we understand that we're all Mephibosheth. <laughs> we understand that... What is your servant? Why would you pay attention to me, a dead dog like me? But having received that, as David had received that, we can turn around and show that to others. And here's where it gets really hard. I really believe that this is uh, a very different thing than saying, as you bump into people, be nice to them. I think it's way, way, way more than that. This is seek people out. Seek people out. Who may be your enemies. Seek people out who no one would expect you to be kind to. Seek people out who 
everyone would agree if you took a vote, they don't deserve your kindness. Seek them out. And then pour out goodness and kindness and love. Not because David did it, but because that's the God who has, that's what God is like. The one who's created us and who has called us to love him, to love others, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. And we do it as he does for us. Like I said, it gets, it gets hard. And it's way more fun to apply it to other people. Well, they ought to be doing this. But it's got to hit us where we live first. So, first application, reflect on the ways in which you personally are the Mephibosheth who's received the, um, the love and the kindness we don't deserve. And then secondly, begin to prayerfully ask God, who are those people that you should be seeking out to show his kindness? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for your amazing love, your amazing grace, your amazing mercy, your kindness to us when we don't deserve it. Lord, we do ask that you would open our eyes, that you'd help us to see the ways that, uh, that you have been good to us far beyond anything we have ever um, earned or deserved. God, we know that the wages of sin is death. And we know that we all have sinned, and so we know that what we have deserved, what we have earned, is only death. And yet you have given us life, real life, redeemed life, restored life, and a promise even of life to come. You have been so good. And so, Lord, we ask that as you open our eyes to your kindness and your goodness to us, that you would help us to see your other children, who you are calling us to be good to and kind to for your sake. God, we know that we are not yet who we need to be. And so we trust in you to continue that work as we trust you in following where you call us and where you lead us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen.